0: Is it you? It wasn't me? I didn't do anything. Must be you. All right. Nice tie, though, brother. All right. Appreciate uh, all the men who help out with our audio-visual and uh, as well as the live stream, a lot of different things that they have to do. And um, not to mention the fact that they have a pastor that expects them to be absolutely perfect at all times. Right. Ain't that right, Jack? <laughs> all right, well, let's take our Bibles, go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, and then we're also going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. While you are turning there, you might have noticed that our signs at the entry doors have been removed. Uh, the governor mask mandate is, uh, I guess, re- repealed, removed, whatever. And so uh, we're not necessarily saying don't wear masks. That's entirely up to you. I know that for me personally, uh, when I'm uh, out among the congregation, I'm still going to be putting on a mask just to protect you from me if perchance I'm asymptomatic and perhaps maybe protect me from you if you're asymptomatic. So um, anyhow, let's just continue to be courteous and um, and sensitive to one another's needs, and fears, and health situations, and uh, uh, we'll continue to do the social distancing, and do everything we can until this is entirely past, and uh, hopefully that is in the near future. Amen. I expected a little bit more excitement about that. You know, I, I think I could preach a message on let's end COVID, and uh, get more shouting than if I preached on heaven, it's quiet there. You, uh... So uh we are having communion today, and we are also having a baptism. Uh, I'm not sure if we've ever done both in the same service, and at least in the time that I've been here, this is the first time that we've done this on a Sunday morning, and normally we would do this in a Sunday evening. And I just thought, you know what, we're not having Sunday night service j- as of just yet, but uh, these are important things that we haven't done for a while, and there is absolutely no reason why it wouldn't be uh, expedient to do this on a Sunday morning. And so uh, I wanted to take the opportunity to teach on these two ordinances of the church, because so often we, especially those of you that were raised around church, I know that many of you were raised in a Baptist church. And sometimes I have even caught myself Things that I have known for so long that I take for granted, sometimes I fail to make sure that I teach and train those things to my people because I just assume that since I've known it for so long, everybody else knows the same information. And I want to be a faithful pastor to the Word of God and I certainly want to be faithful in teaching you Bible doctrine. And so today is going to be primarily Bible lesson, very teachy today. We'll be taking a look at a lot of uh, Bible verses, but I'll try to stay on track and uh, not start spinning my wheels and get caught up in uh, any rabbit trails and uh, stay on track for sake of time. Two verses that I want to start out with here this morning. The first is in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11, and look with me at uh, verse number, I think I might have a misprint already, I can't believe I did that, let me find... 1 Corinthians. Did I say second? I said it and then I turned there and I'm like, wait a minute, this ain't right. First Corinthians chapter number eleven. What does it say on the screen? All right. Well at least I got something right. First Corinthians chapter eleven and verse number two. Paul says, he says, Now I praise you, brethren that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. A little bit of background here. Paul has spent most of the book of First Corinthians rebuking this church for their carnality and their immaturity. And so there's a lot of things that Paul is saying you ought to be able to discern these things based on the principles that you already know, and you haven't done a good job of that. But when it comes to the ordinances, this is what I believe that Paul is saying to Corinth. I think that any preacher, whenever you rebuke, I think even as a parent, sometimes we have to rebuke and we have to correct our children, but it's always a good thing to come back behind that and reinforce with some encouraging things. And I think that what Paul is doing is he's trying to encourage the church, the Christians at Corinth, And let them know that, hey, even though you've been deficient in these areas here, I do want to, I want to commend you that if I spell it out in detail, you've done a good job in obeying those ordinances. And so they should have been able to figure out what God wanted, what Paul was trying to say. They weren't able to that, to do that. But if Paul spelled it out in detail, They did take God and His Word seriously, and if they had all of the facts and didn't have to make any judgment for themselves, then they did a pretty good job of that. But we find that word ordinance, and I don't necessarily think that Paul is talking about the two ordinances of the church. I'm sure sure that that might be part of the equation here, but I think that Paul is talking about more than just the two ordinances. Now take your Bibles and take a look with me at 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, and verse number 15. Paul says to a different group of Christians, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle." So Paul says to these Christians, stand fast in the traditions that we've either taught you verbally or we've taught you by writing you a letter. You know, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because of traditions, but that doesn't mean that all traditions are wrong. The problem with the Pharisees is that they were taking their traditions and they were viewing them or teaching them as the commandments of God. And so there are certainly some traditions, some formalities, some things. You know, there's a lot of things that the way that we do church today is way different than it was back in the days of the apostles. I mean, way, way different. We have a, an actual church building. They didn't have that back then. Uh, we have all kinds. We have pews. I don't believe that they had pews or hymnals. Uh, in fact, in many cases... Back in the early days of Christianity, they didn't have a Bible. They certainly didn't have a printed book that came off of a Gutenberg press. They didn't have any of those things. They had the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had the Holy Spirit. They had apostles who were taught and trained by Jesus Christ. Or they had people who were taught or trained by the apostles. That's the way early Christianity was. And so, so many things have happened over the years between the Reformation and the Protestant movement and the Council of Nicaea back in 300, where basically pagan religion and Christian religion were amalgamated together, and that's where a lot of the ritualisms that we are familiar with today, a lot of them come from that. In fact, much of the world's quote-unquote Christian religion, whether it be Catholicism, Orthodox, the Coptic religions, and so forth, they have so many ceremonies that, to be quite honest with you, it's almost spooky. Now, I've been into some of those cathedrals. In fact, when I was in Israel, uh, we went into some of those cathedrals that are on holy sites, if you want to call them that, in Bethlehem and so forth, and at a distance, I observed some of those Roman Catholic and Orthodox religious rituals. And I have to say, they're quite spooky. And, and, I'm, not, and I'm not really meaning to be critical. It's just the, the, formal, the formality of it and the tradition of it is nothing like what we read about Christianity among the early believers in the book of Acts. And so tradition in and of itself is not wrong. There are some ways that we do things today. You know, we baptize in a baptistry behind this screen, which is basically just a small or a a big tub or a small pool. And they didn't do that back then. They went down to the river or to wherever there was enough water to baptize in. And we we can do that today, but... As a matter of expediency, typically we just use the baptistry because it works just as good. I got baptized in the Snake River when I was nine years old. The Snake River in southern Idaho is a pretty big river, and it was actually in January or February, I don't remember the date, but it was quite cold. And and I can remember that um, the little church that my dad was filling in and preaching at, that they were worried about uh, him getting swept away with the current. And so he's out there, you know, a little bit over waist deep in the Snake River and they got a they got a big old rope tied around his waist and somebody's hanging on to that rope and you know I, if I look back on it I think how come I'm getting baptized how come they don't have a rope around me? So like we care about the preacher, we just don't care about his son. <laughs> but I want to say this, there is a difference between an ordinance and a sacrament. The Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church teach seven sacraments, and they also refer to them as mysteria. That's a a Latin word, and obviously they recognize that these sacraments are a mysterious thing. I think you got to be real careful about making the things that are supposed to be meaningful, mysterious. Sometimes we, we lose sight of the actual meaning. What are the seven sacraments of traditional, I guess, mainstream Christianity In uh, as far as the world is concerned? Well, you have baptism. You have Eucharist. Eucharist is their religious way of saying communion. The Eucharist is the round waiver that they put on the tongue of the participant. You have confirmation you have reconciliation uh, reconciliation is a new word for what they used to call penance when uh, When a sinner goes into a confessional booth and confesses their sins to a uh, earthly priest who's on the other side of the wall and they got the curtains drawn that's what um Uh, reconciliation is. You have anointing of the sick, and then you have marriage, and then you have holy orders. The holy orders is a sacrament by which a lay person becomes a deacon, or a deacon becomes a priest, or a priest becomes a cardinal, or a cardinal becomes a bishop, or a bishop becomes the pope. All of that religious system is called the sacrament of holy orders. Now, the Catholic Church teaches that all of these sacraments, these seven sacraments are, and I quote, they are efficacious, that's a word meaning they have an effect, they're, they have power, they're efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. Now, this is, once again, a modern definition from uh, the Catholic Church, and they use this term, signs of grace. Now, let me just give you a personal note from my experience. I have read numerous literatures that uh, are printed and put out officially by the Roman Catholic Church, apologetics that what I would have to say are filled with doublespeak. What I mean by that is while they say the term efficacious signs of grace, they actually teach that the sacraments, especially baptism, especially Eucharist, especially confirmation and especially reconciliation, that these sacraments all impart grace to the participant. Their literature consistently comes right out and states that these sacraments are necessary for the salvation of the soul. I can say that. I'm not going to spend all the time quoting and proving it to you. You're welcome to check it out for yourself because if you find any of their pamphlets or literature, you will find it plastered all over the place. Listen, sacraments are religious works. And the Bible clearly says, excuse me, my voice is changing. I don't want to go through that again. The Bible clearly says in Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, look at it with me, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So these sacraments are works that they teach, they impart grace to the participant. Often in Roman Catholic literature, you will see statements that support the term salvation by grace. But then at the same token, they teach that the sacraments confer grace to the account of the participant. Now, the Bible clearly says that this is not even possible because it says in Romans 11, verse number 6, you can see for yourself, it says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Listen, you cannot earn grace. If you could earn grace, then it wouldn't be grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is God bestowing His goodness upon us Just simply by faith, not by any works or deeds that we could ever possibly do. If it's by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's the word of God, not the opinion of a Baptist preacher. And so I'm not here representing the Baptists. I'm here representing the Bible. Bible-believing Christians do not believe in the sacraments because the entire concept follows all of the tenets of carnal religion. doesn't matter if it's Christian religion, Hindu religion, Buddhist religion. There are certain tenets. You know that mankind by nature is hopelessly religious. You take a hundred people and put them on an island and all of them be ignorant of God and the Bible and any religion, and you find you will find in a matter of months, they will have formed their own religion. It's human nature. And what we see in many of the religions of the world, we see a manifestation of just that carnal religious nature that is part of men. In fact, uh, you know, the world looks at all the different religions and they think, you know, Christian and Muslim and Buddhist and Hindu. And then all, can you think about all the different uh, denominations and sects that are within the Christian religion? I mean, it's just almost endless. And the world looks at it and thinks of all of these different ones. But do you know that from a Bible perspective, there's really only two religions, There's a religion of do, D-O. And what that means is it's a religion that regardless of what the requirements are, you have to do something in order to please or impress or to satisfy God. And if you do enough of that and God is satisfied enough with you, then he'll let you into heaven. You can take every religion of the world and you can lump it into that category. But the other religion is the religion that I am thankful to be part of, and that is the religion of done, D-O-N-E. Everything has been done in order to get me into heaven, and it was done at the cross of Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I have to do anything, it's not a work, it's simply uh, an act of the heart. By faith, I have to believe and I have to call upon Him and ask Him to save me. And I don't even have to say some canned phrase. I just have to, from the heart, believe. And, you know, you can call upon the name of the Lord and you can do it silently. You can yell it. You can whisper it. You can do it silently. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now of course that calling upon His name is not, you know, the magical phrase saying His name Jesus. It has to do with what Jesus represents. And that means the cross of Calvary, that Jesus died to atone for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. It was a substitutionary death. Only when we put our faith and trust in Christ and the cross and the resurrection, only then can we be saved. I'm glad I'm part of the religion of done. Amen? And by the way, as Bible-believing Christians, we don't believe in the sacraments. But I want to ask you this question, and this is something that I see in modern culture today. And forgive me if I sound a little bit sarcastic, because I am. What business does a Bible believing Christian have participating in Lent? I, I mean, I, I just see and hear about that all the time. You got Bible believing Christians. What are you doing for Lent? That's not a Bible doctrine, folks. That's a, that's a Roman Catholic. It's a man made teaching. It's not in the scripture. Now, please, those of you that are visiting or new around here, please, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited. I'm not trying, I am not arrogant. I promise you that. I just simply believe this book right here. And if you want to fault me for anything, I don't care what a Baptist or a Catholic or I I don't care what religion it says. If they agree with this book, I agree with them. If they disagree with this book, I disagree with them. And there are so many man-made doctrines that you just do not find in this book right here. You don't find infant baptism. Nowhere is it. You don't find purgatory. You don't find any of those things in this book right here. And you say, wow, that's a lot of things. Yeah, you're coming, you're, you're, the lights are coming on. And we find out that just because millions and millions of people believe something, that doesn't mean that there's any security in believing what they believe. There's millions of Muslims. There's millions of Catholics. There's millions of Buddhists. There's millions of Hindus. I mean, number. I mean, un unimaginable numbers of people. And I want to remind you that Jesus made it clear. He says. He says, straight and narrow is the way to life, and few there be that find it, but broad is the road to destruction. Satan doesn't care what road he gets you into hell, he'll get you into hell with a Christian religious road, as long as you miss what the Word of God says about Jesus Christ and true Bible-believing Christianity. Bible believing Christians believe in church ordinances. Ordinances are determined by three factors. Number one, they were instituted by Christ. Number two, they were taught by the apostles. And number three, they were practiced by the early church. And as a majority, the majority of Bible believing Christians teach two ordinances because Christ only taught two ordinances. Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. To be fair with other religions, I'll mention that some churches add foot washing to the ordinance, and I don't see anywhere where Christ says this is an ordinance. I believe that it was an example, and I don't believe that the foot washing aspect was the important part. I believe that the example of servitude and humility was the part that was important. I mean, if that's an ordinance, can you imagine, I mean, I'd hate to have an outdoor service in an Arctic church in Alaska and have foot washing. I mean, you'd get frostbite on your toes. You say, that's ridiculous, preacher. What I'm trying to say is the foot washing was a cultural thing in Jesus' days, and he was saying, I've given you an example to follow. I don't believe that's an ordinance. Now, if there's a church that they want to practice that and they believe that that's an ordinance, personally, I don't find any heresy there. I just don't, you know, I don't see it that way. And so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say, okay, help yourself if that's the way that you see it. Now, the other, uh, ordinance that you will find among, uh, uh, Bible-believing Christians is some people view the head coverings on ladies as an ordinance. And that one, I'm absolutely sure that it is not an ordinance. Because you can go to uh, 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul is dealing with women praying with their heads covered, men praying with their heads covered, and so forth. But the issue at hand, and you can read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 11, the context is not A piece of cloth over the head, but rather it's talking about hair. Long hair as a covering for a woman, and men, just according to what nature teaches us, is short hair. And, and you know, I'm not going to make a big deal out of that. I know that styles uh, change, and, you know, somebody's going to ask the question, well, how long's long and how short's short? Listen, just read 1 Corinthians 11 for yourself. It's really not that hard to figure out. But I will say this, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:16 regarding the covering of the head for women and so forth, he said, "But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom neither the churches of God." And so Paul said, look, as, you know, as far as Christian fellowship or what have you, The the length of a person's hair, Paul says, look, this isn't a custom, this isn't a law, this isn't a rule, so to speak. He said, I'm just simply teaching you what nature teaches you. And you know what? Uh, Well, I, I don't believe that it's sinful to go against those things, but it's certainly not a good testimony, it's certainly not expedient to go against those natural laws that Paul lays out for us in 1 Corinthians 11. So having said all that, by way of introduction, I want to look, first of all, number one, at the Lord's Supper. And I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. And this is one of the examples in the Gospels where Jesus is, uh, we have the what we would call, I guess, the Last Supper, where Jesus is having this um, this Passover feast with his disciples, and he institutes this ordinance. And he says in Matthew chapter 26, and verse number 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying... Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Uh, We also commonly refer to it as communion. And there's a reason that we use the word communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse number 16, Paul says, "...the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ?" That word communion is the same root word as communism... And what it means is that we are having this in common amongst ourselves. When we partake of the elements, the unleavened bread and the new wine, when we partake of that in the Lord's Supper, uh, we we are doing it not to confer grace upon us, but rather it is to have something in common. We're having something in common personally, with the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and that gets our attention on the cross, but we're also doing that collectively one with another, hence the word communion. We're communing with Christ, but we're also communing with one another, uh, surround, or uh, uh, revolving around the event of the cross. Now, I want to say, first of all, I want to talk for just a moment about what the Lord's Supper is not. And here is a proof text that you will find in um, Roman Catholic literature, and it's in John chapter number 6. It's a very important text for them. In John chapter 6 in verse number 53, Jesus is telling the people about him being the bread of life. And he said in verse 53, Then said Jesus unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, And of course, the Roman Catholic Church uses this to teach that when you partake in the Eucharist, they believe that that priest has the power given to him by God that he can pray a Latin prayer over a round cookie and that that wafer literally at that moment during the Mass that it becomes the body of Jesus Christ. And when that participant puts that on their tongue, they are literally eating the body of Jesus Christ. And then the same thing applies to the drinking of the wine, that when they bless it, say the Latin hocus pocus on it, that it becomes literally the blood of Jesus Christ. The text that Jesus is saying has nothing to do with communion. Let me say it once again. It has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. What Jesus is teaching here is that salvation is not simply just making a declaration of belief. Oh, I believe in Jesus. How many people do we know that show no signs, no evidence that God's ever done any work in their heart, and you say, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. You know, they, they could really add anybody to that list. They could say, do you believe in Santa Claus? Yeah, yeah, I believe in Santa Claus. Jesus is saying that there's more to being saved than just being part of the right church. What he's saying is that you've got to receive me. I have to become part of you. I have to become part of your life, and you have to become part of my life. It's called illustrative language, figurative language that, uh, I guess we would say, symbolic language that teaches a literal truth. Now, the issue at hand is we've got to figure out what that literal truth is. When you get born again, something marvelous happens on the inside. We get regenerated. That's a fancy name for saying born again. We get changed on the inside. What we lost in Adam, the sin nature that we were born into this world with, God through the Holy Spirit comes and he regenerates us. We get a change in our soul. We get a change in our spirit, a change in our heart. And Jesus Christ literally in the person of the Holy Spirit, yes, invisibly, Not always immediately felt, but listen, when Jesus Christ moves inside of your body, I've got news for you, there's going to be some changes take place. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. Listen, the moment that I got saved, I didn't become a perfect Christian, I still haven't become a perfect Christian. But I tell you what happened. There was a change in my heart. And I know one thing. When I sin, there's something in my heart that it's worse than, I mean, I got right with the Lord and truly understood the person of the Holy Spirit just before I turned 20. And man, I tell you what, conviction, And that guilt on the inside, when I mess up and when I sin today, it's way worse than it was before I got right with the Lord. I mean that because Jesus Christ lives inside of me. And if you're born again, He lives inside of you as well. Every sin that you commit, you don't have to look around and say, Oh, I wonder if God saw that. Oh, absolutely. If your eyes saw it and your hands touched it, so did Jesus. And that's what the Lord is trying to get the disciples to see that salvation is more than just a name it claim it thing. It's more than just some kind of a canned prayer that we pray or some kind of a canned religious ritual that uh, that man performs. In John 6:63, 6, just a few verses after Jesus says you've got to drink uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood and by the way the disciples that heard that they were kind of flipping out a little bit. What? I mean, when when Jesus said something, they knew he meant it. And so they're all like, we got to eat your flesh? They're thinking thinking cannibalism. And so many of them departed and went away. They said, "We, we don't want anything to do with this. This is crazy teaching. But Jesus clarified what he's teaching. In verse 63, he said... It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's not talking about physical cannibalism here. He's talking about words that are spirit and and life that we have to actually receive Jesus Christ inside of our life and inside of our heart and want him to be part of us. Furthermore, as we talk about what communion is not, I want to say this, that the bread, the wafer, is not transubstantiated. It doesn't become anything other than a piece of unleavened bread. You know, we're doing things COVID safe today with our communion, and uh, we were investigating some different ways to do it, and you know, they have some little prepackaged communion things that, that... People can either go through a line and get, or it can be handed out that's very COVID safe. But the ones that we found that were for sale all had the round wafer. Now, listen, it doesn't matter what, I mean, the reality of it is, is that when Jesus had, when they had communion, they would take a large piece. Really, if you go back in the Middle East, unleavened bread was like a big cracker. Looks like a big saltine about this big. And they would literally take and just break pieces off of that. That's what that unleavened bread and breaking of it was. The reality of it is it doesn't matter what shape that that's in, but I will say this, broken bread certainly isn't going to be in a perfect circle. So why do they make it in a perfect circle instead of a square? Well, you're welcome to study this out for yourself. You will find that in pagan religions before Christian, you know, Catholic, Catholicism ever came into existence that there were wafers that pagan religions made to the Queen of Heaven that were perfectly round in the shape of the sun because that pagan religion was worshipping a sun god. You don't have to take my word for it. You can find it on, you can find it on the internet. You can Google it. And so, When, when we looked at doing that, I thought, you know, there's nothing wrong with a round piece of unleavened bread, but then I thought, no. I don't want to do it. Wouldn't have been sinful or wrong, but just, I don't want, I don't even want it to look like something like that. Because the bottom line is that unleavened bread does not become the body of Jesus Christ. It represents the sinless body of Jesus Christ. And then also the wine. The wine is not fermented. It's not alcohol. You say, well, that's just a matter of preference between different religions and different churches. No, it's not. Because Jesus refers to it as the fruit of the vine. The Bible calls the fruit of the vine new wine. And, uh, Incidentally, when Jesus institutes this Last Supper with his disciples, it is during the week of Passover. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that there was one particular substance that was forbidden for the entire week of Passover, and that was leaven. Leaven is not just something that is used in bread. It is an absolute essential ingredient for any type of sugar or sucrose to turn into alcohol. Grape juice cannot turn into alcohol without leaven. Leaven was forbidden during the Passover, so we can say dogmatically, emphatically, that the wine that was used by Jesus and the disciples was not fermented wine. Isaiah 65, verse number 8, thus saith the Lord as the new wine is found in the cluster. It's squeezed out of the grape. That is the wine that Jesus was talking about when he referred to it as the fruit of the vine. So we know what it's not. Let's take a moment here and focus on what it is. The stated purpose of communion is not mysterious, but rather it is symbolic. It is a remembrance, folks. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 23, I'll be reading this here after a while. But Paul says, "...for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread... till he come. It's symbolic, folks. It's a memorial. It's a remembrance of the sinless body and the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me say this before I start talking to you about baptism, and that is this. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we practice what we call close communion, not closed communion. Now, some of you uh, might not be familiar with those terms. There are some churches, uh, specifically, uh, not specifically, but as far as I know, Baptist churches that practice closed communion. If you were to come into a church service at a closed communion church, if you were not a member of that church, they would not serve you communion. Uh, We practice and believe in close communion. And what we mean by close communion is we believe that you ought to be saved and right with God before you partake in communion. Communion isn't something, listen, if you want to get right with God or get saved before you partake, hey, I got a, I had a a good brother in uh, Brother Runyon's church that visited and he came from a different church background. And he had been taught about communion that, hey, if you're not saved, you shouldn't partake in it. And and by the way, let's go ahead and read it. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 27, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so the the Word of God says quite clearly that if you're not saved or if you're not right with the Lord, just don't participate in that. It's a mockery to say, I want communion with Jesus Christ when our lives, when we're when we are rejecting him, uh, not only in our heart, but also in our lifestyle. And it's a very serious and a very solemn thing. But this brother in Brother Runyon's church, he was taught this, but he didn't understand the full, uh, full ramifications of it. So he's sitting on about the fourth pew back over here on the left, and we're having the Lord's Supper. And he's sweating it out because he said, I'm not saved. Now, he, he had gotten saved when he was younger, but he thought that he had lost it. He'd been taught that, you know, if you didn't stay right with God, you lost your salvation. So he's sitting there thinking, I'm not saved. They're getting ready to pass the bread and, and the, the the cup. What do I do? He's sweating bullets. And you know what he did? He bowed his head right there and he asked the Lord to save him. He got saved right there. He's given his testimony afterward. He's—I didn't even think about this letting it pass. <laughs> I thought, what a great testimony! I mean, the Holy Spirit kind of clouded his mind from thinking just let it go on by. And he thought, I got to get saved before this comes before this this comes my way. And you know, and and boy, his life was changed miraculously after that. What a what a tremendous testimony! But uh, we want to encourage you. If you are not a hundred percent sure that you're saved, or if you're not, if you if you're sure that you're saved but you're not living right with God, don't per, just don't participate. Or do what uh, this brother did and get right with God or get saved before that. Um, before the ushers pass out those elements. All right, so uh, you don't have to be a church member here, as we read here in the text. But let. A man examine himself. We don't feel that God has put the responsibility on us to examine you before we serve you communion. Look, the ushers are going to be passing out the um, unleavened bread and the the new wine, and so it's going to be made available to you. But you examine yourself, and you make that determination. And then parents also, if you've got children and they don't understand what's going on, it's not a snack. It's not something that is, it's supposed to be meaningful. And so I want to encourage you as parents, you oversee your children because I don't believe that it's the church's place to do that. Uh, number two, and I will go quickly folks, I want you to turn to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. And this second uh, part here is, um, is not as lengthy as the first. So uh, we'll get through it pretty quickly here. Matthew 28. The second ordinance is the ordinance of baptism. And it says in Matthew 28, verse number 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, not only is communion a something that the world's religions, the devil, if you will, cause a lot of confusion and a lot of contention and a lot of um, misunderstanding, but baptism is a big one that is very much misunderstood by much even Christian religion, there are some religions that teach that you have to get baptized to be saved. And folks, that is not true at all. I'm not diminishing the importance of water baptism. I believe that it's an important step in our discipleship and in our Christian life. But it is not essential for salvation. And so let's talk about what it is not. It is not the washing away of sins. I I accepted Christ as my Savior when I was five. And uh, I was genuine. I was sincere. I understood I was a sinner. I understood what Christ did for me on the cross. And I genuinely asked Him to be my Savior, to save me. I believe um, that I got saved as a five-year-old boy. But uh, shortly thereafter, I was at Vacation Bible School, and uh, I had told um, I had told the actually I think during Vacation Bible School I went forward because there were some other kids going forward, and the the preacher of that uh, particular church started talking to me, and you know I told him what I'd already done, and so I was kind of confused, and so uh, he kind of talked me into being baptized. And so I got baptized when I was six. But in all honesty, as a six-year-old, nobody had taught me what baptism was. I, I kind of thought that when I went into that water that it was the washing away of my sins. And, and that's a very common misunderstanding that even grown people have because of so many false teachings um, in, uh, in Christianity. Christianity. But it is not the washing away of sins. And as I mentioned before, when I was nine and my dad was was preaching at that little church in Nyssa, Oregon, he was teaching on what baptism was. And even though when I was nine, I hardly ever paid attention to my dad's preaching. It's the truth. But for some reason, I zeroed in on that. And he's teaching that, and I'm listening, and I'm thinking about it. And after the service, we're driving home from Nyssa back to Nampa, Idaho, and I said, said to mom and dad, what do I do if I didn't get baptized for the right reason when I was six? And so we talked about it, and they tried not to coerce me or tell me what to do, and I came to the conclusion on my own that if I didn't get baptized with the right understanding, I wanted to be baptized with the right understanding. And so that's when I was nine that I got baptized again. Now, the, the fact of the matter is, is I've not been baptized twice. I've only been baptized once. Because when I was six, I was just a kid that went into the water and didn't even know what I was doing. So as far as God's concerned, as far as my faith is concerned, that wasn't even... Um, a baptism. Uh, It is not required for salvation. I'm sure that you have considered this before. The thief on the cross was not baptized. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thine kingdom. Here's a man that was a sinner, a thief, probably a murderer, and him and the other thief on the other cross, they're both railing on Jesus. If you're the Son of God, why don't you save yourself and save us? And then during that process of Jesus being crucified, one of the thieves, he started having a change of heart. I believe he started seeing uh, what Jesus was doing and saying, the countenance. And he got under conviction and he repented. So you take a look at the thief on the cross that Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He had the necessary elements of salvation. He had repentance. And he had faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He knew that this was not the end for the Messiah. He's still going to live after this. Those are the necessary elements for anyone. I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you are. Those are the necessary elements for salvation. Repentance. In fact, let's look at it in Acts 20 verse 21. Paul said that he was testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone can be saved. Regardless of nationality and religion, simply by repenting toward God, turning... You know—you can talk about what are you repenting of. You can repent from a false religion. You can repent from a sinful lifestyle. You can repent from just being a stubborn jerk that won't admit that you're wrong. Whatever the case may be, repentance is just simply saying, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm taking your side. That's just the the lowest common denominator I can find to describe repentance. And the thief on the cross, he had that change of heart. And then faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When we put our faith and trust in him, plus nothing, minus nothing, then we can rest assured that God has kept his promise, and we are saved because, not because of what we did, but because of what he did. The substance and testimony of baptism are more important than the words that were uttered by the minister or who the minister is. You know, there are so many different Christian religions today that make such a to-do as far as what the minister said out of his mouth when he was doing the baptizing. We we read there in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. There are some religions that say, No, if you got baptized with those words, then you didn't truly get baptized. You have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And there's a lot of confusion that comes out of that. Listen, folks, baptism is not about... The minister and what he said. I thank God that when I'm getting ready to baptize these folks here after a while, that their testimony with God is not dependent upon me or how the words that I say. You know, the reality of it is, is getting baptized in the name of Jesus has to do with what that baptism represents, not the words that are said. You can say the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. You can say the name Jesus the bottom line is what do those words represent in the heart that's really what matters above all things how can you how can you fault someone for being baptized in the name of the father and of the son and the holy ghost when that's clearly taught you, i don't think that god puts everything out there that's important in such coded language like it's the da vinci code so you got to follow some kind of formula and figure all of this out no Religion always complicates that which God keeps simple. And what happens is it all becomes areas of contention and they lose their blessing and their meaningfulness and the devil just loves it when it goes that way. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be nitpicky about the truth. I'm simply saying that there's just some stuff that, you know, the the devil just comes along and We get so narrow-minded that, well, if they don't do it the way that we did it, then they must be wrong. Well, aren't you glad that God loves you and accepts you right how you are and where you are? Man, you're not looking at a perfect preacher, and we're certainly not a perfect church. Every born-again believer is a work in progress. I'm still learning. Are you? Maybe you've got it all figured out. I don't know, but I think that a lot of it comes down to what the brethren will think of me. And we start processing everything. It's like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble with other people. You know, that sounds a lot like Phariseeism to me. Got a little quiet there. I'm not sure why. But, but also, who, who did the baptizing? You know, there, there's, you, you, there is no guarantee that any preacher out there, they may be, they may be on the right track and they may go liberal. They may go apostate. You may find out that they never were on track. They were just phony baloney. The minister is not the important aspect of baptism. Listen to what Paul said in Acts chapter number, excuse me. I got ahead of myself here. Uh, just skip the, the Acts 19 reference. That's the baptizing in the name of Jesus. I already talked about that. Go to the 1 Corinthians 1 reference on the PowerPoint. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any man should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanas, Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. What's the power of God, folks? Is it baptism? No, it's the preaching of the cross. Paul said, God didn't send me to baptize, he sent me to preach the cross because that's the power of God unto salvation. Paul knew that who does the baptizing and that baptism is not a necessary part of a person's salvation. Paul made that crystal clear. So what is baptism? Well, quite simply, it is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the life of the believer. Romans chapter 6, verse number 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now let me say this. Remember, the point is that Water baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. The verses that I just showed you out of Romans 6 are very dry verses. There's no water in that. So, we, what we're seeing here is that the water is a picture of this baptism. This isn't, when you see that word baptism, don't assume it's talking about water. It's talking about an immersion. And so the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is pictured in Bible believers' baptism because the person is submerged into that water. That is a picture of burial. That's the reason that we don't sprinkle and we don't pour. I mean, listen, if, if, if your loved one, if you go down to the, the funeral home and have a funeral for somebody that's dead you don't just pour a little bit of dirt on their forehead. You don't sprinkle dirt in their face and say, oh, you're buried. No, baptism is a picture of that burial. And that's why, I mean, that's why it's important that we do it in accordance to the Scripture. You say, well, where did the pouring and the sprinkling come from? It came from religious tradition. Just like infant baptism. It came from religious tradition, and um, it, it did not come from the Bible. Now, water baptism, it pictures what took place in the unseen realm, in our soul, in our spirit, and it is referred to as a figure. Now, listen, If you, if you if, if this is new teaching for you, please don't tune me out. Just listen to what I have to say. You might find that maybe I'm right. Because in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 20, listen to what Peter says. He says, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Peter says that Noah and his family were saved by water. Interesting. Now he says in verse 21, the like figure. If you have a like figure, then obviously the, the figure of Noah and his family being saved by water. And some people would say, Oh, see, right there it is. The water saves you. Um, I got news for you. Noah and his family stayed dry. See, that water pictures a death, a burial. They were saved by water. They came out of the flood with a brand new life, but they stayed dry. The like figure. Whereunto, watch this, baptism doth also now save us. Wait a minute, preacher. You said baptism isn't necessary for salvation. But Peter says that baptism saves us. Yeah, but not the water stuff. The spiritual stuff, Romans 6 that we already read. Notice that Peter adds in parentheses, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. He's saying it's not the water, folks, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now look at this verse without the parentheses. Alright, I'm going to back up here to verse 21 the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see it? You take that parenthetical statement out and it's obvious that the salvation is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a figure. It's a picture. 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13, For by one Spirit... Are we all baptized into one body? This isn't the preacher or the minister, water baptizing. It is the Holy Spirit immersing us into the body of Christ, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free. Now, if you ever doubt that water baptism is a picture or a figure, then look at the last part of the verse. It says, "...and have been all made to drink into one spirit." If the baptism by the Spirit is talking about water here, then so is the drinking. And you don't find anywhere that anybody has that religious ritual. Listen, I'm not going to recommend to those being baptized today that they take a gulp of water out of the baptistry. Now, Brother Glenn keeps it clean, but like it's not necessary because it's not talking about the literal water, the water is a picture, it's a figure, just like that drinking into one spirit, that is consistent with the teaching of Jesus when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profiteth nothing. So I conclude with my lesson here this morning by just simply saying this, don't let controversy or corruption spoil you of the blessings of baptism and communion. They are not mystical, folks. They are meaningful. Thank God that we have the privilege today to hand out these elements that represent the sinless body of Jesus Christ broken on Calvary's cross. Thank God for the precious blood of Christ and that we can partake of this element and it be meaningful, and represent, and it be a communion that we have with him, with one another. And then the baptism. Thank God for people that are saved, but then to have a testimony before the whole world, a clear conscience telling the whole world that, hey, what you're seeing happen to me in this baptistry is what's already taken place in my heart and life. I have been buried with Jesus Christ I have been resurrected to a brand new life. Don't let it become mysterious. Let it be meaningful. Understand what the Word of God says. Rightly divide it. Don't let religion corrupt it. Don't let it take out the blessings. Thank God for the two ordinances that God gave the church.